Well, good morning. It's, uh, I would say it's good to be with you, but we're here every week, so. Um, no, but it, it's always a special pleasure um, for me to be able to, to teach and to preach and um, for us all to uh, get to look at something a little different this week as we're starting to see Easter in our sights. Um, I think rather than take the usual route of very familiar texts towards Easter to look at something different. And that's what we're going to do this morning. Um, And before we do that, as I usually do, I want to pray again. So if you would indulge me. Father, in the name of Jesus and by the help of your Holy Spirit, we ask you please to be with us. We need the real word, the living word, the word of flesh, We need Jesus to speak to us by your Holy Spirit. As important and true and authoritative as the words on this page are, the words that you've given to us, we need the real word, the living word to speak. So God, do that. Please, we pray. Speak to us by your Spirit. Breathe new life into us. Open our eyes that we would see. We pray, Father, Son, and Spirit, that you would silence everything that is not from you, every voice that's not yours, everything that doesn't belong to you. Let it be silent. And let only your voice be heard. In the name of Jesus, amen. A couple years ago, I read a book. Uh, I wouldn't recommend the movie. It was fine. The book... Uh, The Road by Cormac McCarthy. I've read lots of books, lots of novels that have stuck with me, that have, that's communicated something, but there is a way that he writes in that book that I have not been able to shake. It it is a stripped down prose with with no flourish, no uh, extraneous detail. It is just simple, stark, and bleak, just like the world that he's trying to describe. And if you haven't read the book or seen the movie, the, the book is really about a father and a son. That as the story opens, they are sort of wandering through this ashen gray remnant of a world. Some disaster has come upon, the, come upon the world. We don't know what it is. He doesn't really describe it. All we know is his father and son are moving from place to place to place. And it seems like everywhere they go, there's just some other kind of tragedy some reminder that this world is a horrible place. And so much of this novel is the father wrestling with his own fears for his son because the father knows he's dying. And he is terrified of what will happen to him if his son is left alone. So every time they come to one of these places and the son begins to ask him, Father, where are we going? What are we trying to get to? And his father keeps saying, we need to get to the sea. We need to get to the sea. It'll be warm there. Because for some untold amount of time, they have been wandering, they've been lost, they have been cold. And just like this world that uh, McCarthy creates, it's drained of all hope, all color, all delight, all satisfaction, and it's just pure existence. 
And at one point in the novel, they think that they've stumbled on this safe haven. They find a home. There seems to be plenty of food in it until at one moment the father discovers something terrifying. And that is other people chained up in a basement. And he realizes they're not slaves. They're on the menu. And as he discovers this, the people that live there come back. And it's pretty clear, these aren't inviting people. And so the father and son are running through the night uh, an untold distance until they find a place that's safe and they finally settle down. And the son doesn't fully realize what's happened, but he starts to ask some questions. And the, the father's reluctant to tell his son anything, but the son knows more what's going on than his dad wants to believe. And when they find this other place to rest and the father's thinking through all of this while his son sleeps, he says these words, some of the only words I underlined in this entire book, but he's describing this flooded home. Everything is rotten or rusted or falling apart. And he says, we're living on borrowed time in a borrowed world and borrowed eyes with which to sorrow it. In the last 10 years, stories like the one McCarthy writes have become very popular. He wrote his book, AMC Stumbled on a Moneymaker and the Walking Dead. We all went through our zombie fascination. But this idea that something could happen to decimate the world as we know it, it's been following us ever since Arnold Schwarzenegger proved that he could be a great human playing a robot pretending to be a human. We have been terrified, terrified about the things that we've made because we are convinced that the time is coming when the things that we made will destroy us. And the reason I bring up that story and the, the picture that I have in my mind is as I thought about our text and I thought about where we are in relation to the Easter season coming up, I can't get away from the idea that all of us are wandering down this road trying to find the sea, trying to find some place that in our minds will say, this is the safe haven. This is where we'll find warmth and hope. This is where we'll find delight again. This is the thing that when we get there, when we have it in our hands, everything that we know we have been missing will be found. And what is so intriguing to me is that in the earliest chapters of our Bible, when God is wanting to show us what sin has done to the world, what sin has done to us, what sin has done to all that he has made, he doesn't make a list. He doesn't write a letter. But he tells it all in a story. And in our first text this morning, we're gonna look at a couple. The first one from Genesis chapter four, I wanna point out one particular verse. In verse 16, after all that has happened with Adam and Eve in all that's happened with their sons and Cain killing his brother. This one detail is included. Verse 16. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And that is the first time that phrase, east of Eden, will come up in the Bible, but it's not the last. The theme of 
moving east or something coming from the east will show up repeatedly, especially in Genesis, but in the rest of the Old Testament. And what, what Moses is describing for us, what he wants us to recognize about this new bleak world that humanity has stepped into is that most of us, most of us deal with our lostness in terms of morality. But being lost entails a whole lot more than that. Because how, how, how does God capture all that has happened in this one human being's life? Everything that describes, everything that would show, what, is it, what does it mean that Cain is now in sin? Yes, he killed his brother. But he punctuates the story by saying he is wandering and moving away. Moving east in the Old Testament will just about always refer to walking away from God. This isn't something geopolitical. This isn't just pure moral categories. This is wrong and this is right. This is God describing the entire motion of a person who is walking away from him into the very kind of bleak, colorless world that McCarthy describes in his book that is just ashen and hopeless. Cain's moving east. And he does a couple other things. He says flat out that Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. And this place that he settles in, even that is part of this picture because the word nod itself comes from a word which means wandering. Everything about this one sentence God is packing in for us that Cain's lostness is something far greater and far deeper than just killing his brother. As sinister as that might be, it's so much bigger. It entails so much of him. And here's the crazy thing. You know what Cain does next? He builds cities and he has sons. And those sons become craftsmen and musicians and farmers and artisans of almost every kind. So it is very possible for us to be desperately lost and still making incredible things. And I think one of the temptations we feel, especially in Houston, especially in a city like this, where cultural Christianity is still very much a part of the air that we live in, it's very easy for us to settle with the idea of what is good and what's bad, who's a moral person and who isn't based on how their life looks. You can have all the best stuff. You can be in exactly the right place. You can live in just the perfect neighborhood and have all the right friends and all the best associations and everyone knows your name. And when they've got a problem, they call you. And when they say, who's the best? They say, this woman. And you're, you can still be a mess. Your life can look perfect. And your soul can still be dislocated. And just so we don't miss this, this idea of moving east, the things coming from the east, it's not just about individuals. it, It becomes something bigger. It encompasses entire cultures and even the entire globe. So we don't even have to look that much further past Genesis 4. When we get to Genesis 11, and Moses is talking about the Tower of Babel, do you know how he describes the people who come together? He says they came from the east. They came from the place that is completely separated from God. Those are the people 
that came together to build this tower. When Abraham and his nephew realized that, man, all of our stuff is too much to kind of put together and say in one camp, we need to get some space from each other in a way to highlight the foolishness of his nephew. He says that uh, when they separated, Lot moved east. And as the story goes, we know in him moving east where he ended up. Right in the city, belonging to the people of Sodom. He moved east. He moved away from God. When God will describe uh, judgment on unbelieving nations and even his own unbelieving people, he will often describe it as this burning wind that comes from the east. And even in Exodus, when Moses is sent to deliver God's people and to bring them out of Egypt, and when Pharaoh continues to refuse, when God describes how he brought the locusts upon Egypt, he said that he stirred up an east wind. So this this little verse, this almost throwaway detail about Cain contains so much for us to consider about what it means for us to be lost and to not know God. It's so much more than just what we do on a Sunday morning or how we describe what sort of religious views we have or how we vote or who the enemies are. It's so much bigger. It's so much more complicated. It's so much easier to miss. And this is one of the reasons why we're seeing so much increasing division Because the more we press into our own sin and what that means for each of us and how the cascading effect of as more people are involved and you get onto the level of cultures, we're settling for an oversimplification. We're settling for a kind of fundamentalism that wants to reduce everything down so that it's clean and neat and tidy and black and white so I can know when I'm right and they're wrong so that I can know how I'm winning and versus losing and everything else. And this is happening with every group and even nearly every country. We want so bad to find a way out. We know that we're wandering and we know that we're lost. We feel it in our bones. man, it's a lot easier. It's a lot easier to keep everything neat and tidy and black and white and real simple and on the outside because it's easier to measure and it's easier to know where I stand versus everybody else. And you can, man, you can be on top of that pile. You can be the king of the hill and your soul can still be dead. You can still be lost. You can still have no idea where you're going or who you are or what your life is supposed to be about. And what's funny about all of this is that God's solution is not what we often think. God's solution is to not to then just begin to bang the drum. Man, you're awful. Did you see that thing that you just did? Can you, why, do you understand how terrible that is? Don't you know what I told you not to do? That's what we think God does. But here's what God really does. Exodus 31 
that's somewhere between that eastern edge of the world, that far reach of uh, the farthest place that we can go symbolically to get away from God and on the edge of the Western empire, the greatest power in the world, in the middle, in between all of that, God makes a tent. He builds a tent. Verse, uh, chapter 31, verse one. The Lord said to Moses, see, I have called by name Bezalel of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him a Holiab of the tribe of Dan, and I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. God spoke the cosmos into being. And when he wants to make an appetizer for Eden, he makes a tent. And he doesn't speak it. He doesn't just pull it up out of the ground like some magician. He gets a couple men. Men that were skilled in all the ordinary stuff. Ever since Cain's sons figured out how to work with metal and how to work with wood and how to work with leather for all of their lostness and all the ways that that has pervaded the cultures and the peoples all the way down to this moment, God takes those things and he says, set these people apart. Take all of their skill, all of their ability. And in one of the first instances, of anyone being described having the spirit of God, he pours it out on these men who will never be named again. So that they would build a tent, the tabernacle, the the portable structure that would go before the temple in Jerusalem made of brick and mortar. And the thing that is distinct about this, when you get into all of the details of this location, why did God create these craftsmen? Because it needed to be clear what every single part of this tent is pointing to. Because it's not a temple like you think. It's not like most of the cultures in their day thought of a temple or a tent. It wasn't a place for the God to live. It wasn't a place for us to satiate him. This was the place for God to be with his people and that every detail about this tent points back to Eden. Everything from the pools of water to the way that the candlesticks were made to uh, the inside that was uh, ordained with golden thread in the shape of angels Everything about this building points back to the glory of creation before sin ever came into it. That here in the midst of this desert, here in between the furthest reaches that man can get away from God and the place that most of us run to when when we want something to replace God, to power, to politics, to place. In the middle of all that, in the middle of nowhere, God is building a tent through ordinary people 
so that we would know he is still with us. God doesn't bang the drum about how lost we are, saying you don't even understand how deep it goes. And even when you think you're doing it right, he doesn't do that. No matter how lost we are, God says, I'm gonna be right in the middle of it. And I'm gonna make a doorway for you to come to me. And he takes people that we will quickly forget to do it. Some of the first people God sets apart and fills with his spirit are nobodies. To build his temple that both points us back to Eden, back to where we came from, back to what we had in the beginning. And that becomes the vision of the future. Because all of these same images, all of these same things that Bezalel and his whole crew of craftsmen are going to make, yes, it points back to Eden, but that's gonna be picked up at the end. It's gonna be picked up again when John is describing the new heavens and the new earth. When everything in the cosmos is made right, it sounds like this tent, which sounds like Eden. Eden. And one of the great ironies of it all is that new Eden, that new tabernacle, is a city. The very thing that Cain made. For all of his lostness, for all of his moving away from God, for all of his wandering, God still took something that he made. God still saw value in it and allows that to become part of his redeeming purposes. So it doesn't matter where you find yourself. It doesn't matter how together your life is or how falling apart it is. It doesn't matter if your house is the envy of everyone on the block or in the city or it is in shambles and falling apart. God can take all of that And he can sift out all of the levels of lostness and all of the the complicated things that we bring in and how the sins that we commit and all of the underlying ways that we don't even know, we couldn't even pay attention to. And it would probably break us to know just how far it goes. He can sift out all of that. And he can pull out something beautiful from it and make something incredible. Something that we could have never dreamed up on our own so that it is not us trying to, trying to close that gap between us and God, but God coming down and making a way and drawing us in and drawing us near so that we can know him. So that we can be with him. As we get closer to Easter and we're considering this bigger theme in God's story, as we look at Cain, knowing that being lost involves a whole lot more than morality. And that finding our way, finding our way is a lot more than just knowing how we're broken. As we look at what John says, as he introduces his gospel in chapter one, verse 14, that we realize the way out of lostness is moving from a place to a presence. We move from place to presence. It's no longer about getting to a particular spot, 
but coming to see a particular person. In John chapter one, verse 14, John says this, speaking about Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. When John says that Jesus became flesh and the word that is translated for us dwelt among us. John is intentionally turning uh, the word tabernacle into a verb. It could just as easily be rendered, he tabernacled among us. That Jesus himself came to be with us, came to the furthest stretches of humanity's lostness, and he said, I'm gonna plant my roots here. The temple went from being a place, the tabernacle goes from being a place to the person of Jesus. And that is something that John picks up on his entire gospel. If you wanna know who Jesus is, if you want to know God, what he says to Thomas, Thomas, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. That Jesus himself becomes the doorway to the presence of God. And then when our sin, when our sin required God to send us out from that garden and guard the entry point by an angel with a flaming sword so that we could never find a way to life apart from him, because we're not gonna find it. But that when Jesus becomes the tabernacle, when he becomes the place where we meet God, where we come to see God and know God and find God and find the way out from all of our lostness, Jesus doesn't just become the way. He doesn't just become the teacher. He becomes the one who is holding open the door to God. That he's no longer barring us with a flaming sword, but he's holding open between the cross and the empty tomb the way for us to find him. And he's holding it wide. He's holding it wide for anyone who wants to come. You do not have to be able to detail your wandering. You don't, know how, you don't have to know every part of your lostness. He doesn't need that. All he says is come. And in so many different ways, and there's a reason for that, because it's not about what we do or don't do. It's not about getting your theology right. It doesn't matter. You just need to know him. He will deal with the rest. He will figure out the rest. His spirit will teach us the rest. All that matters is do you know him? Will you find your way to God through him? That's it. That's all that matters. And John will present this to us in so many ways. All of the gospel writers. This is why there's so many stories of people needing to be fed or people needing to be healed, or people needing to be freed from demonic oppression. This is why he's also bumping up against people who have power and wanna keep it, whether it's religious or political. Because all of these things are substitutes for the presence of God. So whatever it is, whatever hunger you're trying to satisfy, whatever physical weakness you want to ignore or you don't want anyone to know about, 
whatever way you feel fatigue or sick or lost. Jesus doesn't need you to figure that out. All he says, just come, just come. You find your way, it's not that hard. It's right here between a cross and an empty tomb. And that even once we've embraced that, even once we know that, he still doesn't require us to untangle every bit of our lostness. He just needs us to remember the grace. This is, why, this is the exact reason why Paul will say to the Galatians, have you begun in the spirit to now continue in the flesh? And this, I think, is, is something that we in our congregation is still kind of in the air. We know that when someone comes to believe in Jesus, man, that's grace. But we don't want to abuse grace. So we need to remind each other all the time just how lost and sinful we are. Because that will keep us going after God. You realize that's, that is not what Christ has called us to. Because number one, that is, that is putting on our shoulders the burden of figuring out what sins are the most egregious and that we really need to get straight right now. Jesus says, that's the Spirit's job. The Spirit will come into the world to convict the world of sin. That's the Spirit's job. So that if there are things, if there are things going on in us, that it's not on us to figure out what our sins are or the, the most difficult ones, the most dangerous ones, the ones that in most need of conquering, that is his job. This is one of the reasons why the most important move this church could have ever made is embracing the personal, particular ministry of the Spirit. Because if we do not know how to even pay attention to what the Spirit is doing, all we have left is to nitpick each other. And it's, it is a worse kind of legalism to be able to say, I know what's most broken in you and where you are in the greatest need of repentance, so you just need to listen to me. So you're the spirit now. That's the spirit's job. You know what the New Testament calls us to do? Love each other, serve each other, support each other, pray for each other, have mercy on each other, bear one another's burdens. To those who weep, weep. And for those who rejoice, rejoice. That is what the Spirit calls us to do. Because the Father, Son, and Spirit are saying, we took care of the lostness. We've dealt with that. We will figure out how it's still playing out among you and we will tell you. We will let you know. And what's happening in your life may be different than what's happening in their life. And I will make sure that we work it all out. That's not on us. And the way forward into grace, the way forward into the kingdom of God, the way forward into the rest and fullness and freedom that Jesus offers is not deciding for someone else what their sin is. 
It's not. It is not constantly telling each other just how sinful and messed up we are. The way forward is reminding each other that in all the various ways that we were lost, God made a way. God came down. God jumped right into the middle of it. As far east as we could have possibly gone, he went out to bring us back in. The way forward out of sin, out of lostness, is not more law, but the grace of God. That doesn't just lead us into a different sort of place, but leads us to his presence. Leads us to be with him, where he is. And I didn't just bring up the road to tell a very depressing story at the outset. (laughs) Which I will say, uh, Every time I think about that novel, I feel lots of conflicting things. Because in this really, it was very bleak and very heavy, and yet I couldn't put it down. I couldn't stop reading it. And you feel this simultaneous sort of depression and yet something else. And I think that's what's so powerful about this book. Because when you get to the end, and you realize that all throughout, one of the things that the father says to the son, when the son asks him, where are we going and why are we doing this? The father always says, we gotta carry the fire. He doesn't really explain what that is. But by the time you get to the end, you start to realize when they finally get to the sea and it's not warm, the sun doesn't shine. It's just as bleak and empty as the rest of the world. But they've carried the fire. And it's there that the father finally succumbs to his illness and his injuries. But it's only after his son is embraced by a family. It's only after this long journey that they have been wandering and alone. As the man passes away, as the man gives his life, his son finds a family and they carry the fire. That even in the midst of all of this bleak, hopeless world, there's still a fire of hope burning. And that fire of hope is most clearly seen in a family. Which strikes me as the very thing that God is doing. That in the midst of our bleak and broken and lost world, he's building a family. With himself at the center. That we can carry the fire We can keep that hope alive. And in a very real sense, the fire of God's presence with his people. That God is with us and he has made a way so that we don't have to wander in lostness anymore, but we can come home. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the ways that you not only teach us through the letters and the clear writings in your word, but Lord, you show us so much. Thank you that your Bible is filled with stories. 
that can help us to see ourselves. May we be, not be like the people James warns us about. That we wouldn't be people who look at your scriptures like a man looks in the mirror and walks away forgetting what he looks like. Lord, help us to let this word show us who we are, to be that real mirror. But God, I pray that it would more than that help us to see who you are. Help us to know you. Help us to recognize your voice and to see your face because that is what we really need. Spirit, some of us are so good at making sure our life is together. And I, I, I am praying that all of us would walk away. If everything else is forgotten, that you, Holy Spirit, would teach us, that you would give us the assurance that you know what you're doing. And if there are sins that need to be repented of, you'll handle it. If there are other things that you wanna lead us into, you'll show us. God, make us a people clearly dependent on you, trusting that you will do what needs to be done. And as far as it depends on us, we would show each other the grace that you've extended to us, that we would be like that family who carries the fire, that your fire of hope and your presence would burn in us as we go out. Go with us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And remind each and every person here who you say they are. We ask that in your name, Jesus.